Well, today was one of those fun days for a pastor when he gets in his study, and I was ready to go on into the next few verses, and the last phrase of verse 12 caught my eye. The more I studied it all day, the more the can of worms opened up. And by the end of the day, I thought, well, I really uh, need about three more days to get ready for tonight. So we'll... See how far we get tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, prepare to get into God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You so much for this wonderful privilege and opportunity to study Your Word. What a remarkable thing it is that the eternal God of the universe has reduced part of His wisdom to writing for us, that we may know how know all about Him, and know how to love Him, may know Him, and may know how to have a relationship with Him. So, Father, now as we study Your Word, we pray that You would help us to understand these things and challenge us, motivate us, in order that we might fulfill the destiny that You have planned for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1, verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12. As we've been studying James, the main theme that we're focusing on has been that of adversity and trials. We go through adversity because adversity, according to verses 2 through 4, is the means by which God advances us from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. You can't get there any other way. Tests and trials, adversity, is that which gives us the opportunity to put into practice what we have learned in Bible class, the doctrine that we have learned and thought about and assimilated, metabolized, so that we can apply it and grow and mature. Now, what we have done in studying this is talked about how God has given us a fortification. Uh, The psalmist talks about how God is our fortress, He is our shield, He is our defender, He is our bulwark, He is our rock. All of these are metaphors which explain to us how we can be protected by God. Here we are in the middle, this is our soul, your soul is right here, and what builds a protection around your soul The fortress is Bible doctrine, specifically ten ten stress busters or problem-solving devices which are extrapolated from Scripture. Now remember, adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Adversity is what the outside circumstances of life do to you, but stress is what you do to yourself. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional because your volition comes into play. God has given you the option as a believer to avoid stress or to absorb stress or to make stress fragment your soul. So that is why I call these the ten stress busters. And the way you develop these, the way we understand these, is as we study Scripture. What we do is we extrapolate from Scripture certain doctrinal principles that God has given us for handling problems. And then these are categorized and simplified for for the basis of uh, teaching and understanding and understanding the Word and applying it in our lives. Now the first is confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, which leads to the second, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Then the third is the faith rest drill and the three stages of the faith rest drill, mixing promises with faith, reaching, uh, uh, using doctrinal rationales and reaching doctrinal conclusions. The fourth stage is grace orientation. The fifth uh, problem-solving device or stress buster is doctrinal orientation. And these are your basic problem-solving devices. They are fundamental to everything. We can't go anywhere in the spiritual life without the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to see on Sunday morning in the first hour in our study of Galatians, that we are either under the filling of the Holy Spirit, 
we're either empowered by the Holy Spirit in the spiritual life or we are functioning under the power of the sin nature. One or the other. There's no middle ground. Everything we do is energized by one or the other. So we have the only way to get the filling of the Holy Spirit is through confession. This is the doorway into our fortress. And then the filling of the Spirit is the power. Faith rest drill is really the glue, the mortar that holds all the bricks together in the walls of our fortress. Grace orientation and doctrinal orientation undergird everything. All of the advanced problem-solving devices really depend on grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. If we don't understand grace, if we don't understand that everything that we have is given to us freely, we do not have to earn or deserve God's love. Once we, if we don't understand that, we can never go forward because we're constantly looking back, constantly worried that somehow I've done something that's too great for God to handle. Somehow I've got a problem or I did something that, that is going to hold me back or keep me from being saved or keep God from fully blessing me. We have to understand grace orientation if we're going to move forward, for that is the foundation for everything. Understanding grace gives us the freedom to look forward and move forward in the spiritual life without looking back to past problems, past failures, and past uh, disappointments. Grace orientation gives us the ability to go forward. Doctrinal orientation gives us the content, the content in our soul, from the milk of the Word to the meat of the Word, It's the content in our soul that we uh, learn and apply. You can't apply what you don't know, and you can't know what you don't learn. So these first five problem-solving devices or stress busters are the foundation that undergird the spiritual life. And as you advance from spiritual infancy through, through learning these stages and consistently applying them, then you advance through the various stages to spiritual adolescence. Then we come down here to the sixth, which is a personal sense of an eternal destiny. At this point, we begin to get beyond the here and now. At this point, we begin to realize that we have an eternal future in heaven. And every decision we make now impacts that position and capacity for eternity with the Lord. And so we begin to realize that who we will be then is determined by the decisions we make now. As we move through this gateway into spiritual adulthood, we come to the seventh and eighth stages which work together in tandem. Just as grace orientation and doctrinal orientation work together in tandem, so seven and eight work together in tandem. Seven is a personal love for God the Father, and eight is impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind. These work together for together because they both operate on the principle of love. And we have to understand what love is. One of the major problems facing most people today, and especially most Christians, is they don't have a clue as to what love is. They run around talking a lot about how they love Jesus, and they sing songs, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. But they don't know anything about Jesus. And they're just operating on a lot of emotion, and a lot of sentimentality, and it doesn't get them anywhere. And the trouble is that they have this same silly concept of love that they transfer over to human relationships, and they wonder why their marriages fail. They wonder why their relationships with their kids aren't what they think they ought to be. And they wonder why their relationships with co-workers and with other people have problems. It's because they don't understand Love And as believers, they don't understand how to use especially unconditional love for mankind or impersonal love as a problem-solving device so that they can have stability in those relationships that when things are not going well or you have to deal with somebody else's sin nature, you can have stability in that relationship because it's not based upon other people's behavior. So seven and eight work together in tandem based on love. Nine is, and I'm changing these around, I think nine is occupation with Christ because the more I look at James 1, the more I think that the 
that the apex of the spiritual life is the contentment, tranquility, peace that is provided through inner happiness. So the tenth problem-solving device is inner happiness. As we focus on Christ, the consequence of that is inner peace, stability, tranquility. So these are the ten problem-solving devices, the ten stress busters. And what we have in James 1 is a discussion of how the believer is to face and handle adversity. And you can break... This is an introduction from 1-2 down through 1-18 is the introduction to the epistle. 1-2 through 11 revolves around the theme of the believer's attitude toward adversity. The believer's attitude towards adversity. It develops the idea we find in verse 2 of count it all joy. How do we do that? I think the whole epistle from the end of verse 4 on helps us to understand how we can do this command. How can we count it all joy? Because that's not simple. It's based on a lot of knowledge. It's based on a lot of maturity. The immature believer is not going to be able to do that very well. So how do we do that? So the first 11 verses, or really 2 through 11, is the believer's attitude towards the trial, towards the test, towards adversity. In verse 12, down to verse 18, the subject shifts. And the subject now shifts to the believer's attitude toward God while he's in the midst of his trial. While he's in the midst of adversity, what is your attitude toward God in the midst of your test? And last week we began verse 12, which says, Blessed is a man, and the word for blessed, makarios, takes us back. It's a synonym for kara, joy, back in verse 2. Blessed is a man who perseveres. There's our same word again. Here it is the preposition uh, hupomones. Uh, I mean, excuse me, the verb hupomones, who perseveres under trial. And back in verse 3, it was in the noun form, hupomone, uh, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And whether we're talking about the noun hupomones or the verb hupomoneo, you're still talking about that attitude of persistence endurance, consistency, that no matter how difficult it becomes, no matter how easy it seems to yield to the temptation of the sin nature to somehow step out from under the trial, to take the easy course of action, to resolve your problem through mental attitude sins like anger or hatred or or through vengeance or vindictiveness, somehow getting back at somebody they haven't performed the way you think they should perform, so now you're going to get back at them. Whatever it may be, there's always some simple, easy way we think, and we justify ourselves in that course of action for getting out from under the test or the trial and doing what God wants us to do. God's usually not concerned about what other people are doing. God's concerned exactly about what we are doing in the trial, and too often we want to say, well, so-and-so did this, or I've seen so-and-so do that. Well, I know the pastor, and he'd handle it this way. God's not concerned about that. He's concerned about how you are using the doctrine in your soul to solve the problem. So blessed is a man who perseveres. It takes us back to that theme of persistence. Perseveres under trial. Testing, the same word we find back in verse 2. So we see how James goes back, picks up the same ideas that he began with in verse 2. For once he has been approved, and there we have the verb uh, from the root dokimos, going back to dokimon, and verse 3, the testing for approval, that he will receive the crown of life. Crown of life takes us right here to that personal sense of our eternal destiny. Now, what we have seen at this point, the first 12 verses, is that seven of these stress busters have been referred to by James already. Seven. I, I sat down today and counted it up. Now, we don't have a mention of confession or the filling of the Holy Spirit. But we saw that if we face trials, the solution was in verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That's doctrinal 
orientation. But let him ask in faith, verse 6, that is the faith rest drill. That's our second stress buster in the chapter. Then we got down to verse 9. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. And we saw that this humility is part of grace orientation. So, by verse 9, we've covered faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. And then we come down to uh, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. What is your motivation today? Why are you to handle your trials with persistence today? It's because you're looking forward to that reward in heaven. You're looking forward to what it's going to produce in you. That this is not something just for temporal value, but for eternal value. And has an impact on your position for eternity. So that brings into play your personal sense of your eternal destiny. So now we've covered four of the ten. And then, uh, well really we have to include... uh, inner happiness, the tenth one, from back in verse 2. So that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 that we've covered so far. And then in this passage, at the end, in that last couple of words of verse 12, what do we read about the crown of life? That this is that which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. To those who love Him. And that brings in... This problem-solving device right here, number seven, our personal love for God the Father. That our personal love for God the Father is a motivator that works in conjunction with personal sense of our eternal destiny. So that's how many now? Uh, One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, six of the ten. I miscounted earlier. Six of the ten are already mentioned, and by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we will pick up uh, two more. So these are all covered here as part of James' illustration. He alludes to everyone, almost everyone, of the stress busters in how to handle and face the adversities of life. But I was all ready to push on to the next three verses and deal with uh, temptation and testing and the sin nature and lust. And all of a sudden today, as I'm reading through this verse, it just sort of reached out and grabbed me and hit me between the eyes that that that's what was happening at the end of verse 12. That he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, we tend to go right past that phrase because we're so used to hearing people talk about loving the Lord, and yet very few people truly do love the Lord. I think it's a... One of the greatest myths that most Christians love the Lord. Because most Christians don't know the Lord. And you cannot love someone you do not know. And if the only way to know the Lord is through the Scriptures. See, it's real easy sometimes to love someone you see. Someone you have a physical, and by that I don't, I mean a, a material relationship with. Someone you see every day, someone you live with someone you know because you can reach out and you can see them, you can touch them, you, they're, they're a physical presence. But the Lord is a spirit and we worship Him by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit and doctrine. The only way you can know anything about the Lord is to study the Scriptures. The only way you know who God is and what He has done for you is to study the Scriptures. And if you haven't learned anything about God from studying the Scriptures, then you can't love Him. And one of the greatest problems, I think, facing uh, Christians today is this idea that, oh, I can love the Lord, just He saved me, so isn't it wonderful? And what they've done is confuse love with a superficial, sentimental, shallow, silly emotion. And that has nothing to do with the biblical concept of loving God. For the concept of loving God is a very rich, and deep concept, and so we're going to take some time to understand this and to evaluate this, examine the Scriptures on love, because these two problem-solving devices work together in tandem. The personal love for God the Father and unconditional love for all mankind or impersonal love for mankind. And in order to get into this by way of introduction, 
I want to start by defining our terms. First of all, what do we mean by personal love? Personal love, whenever you say to someone, I love you, when you are looking at them in terms of their attractiveness, the characteristics about them that you enjoy, that you appreciate, you like the way they look, you like the things they say, you like their opinions, you like uh, to share your time with them, then your love for them is based on what you see in that other person, how they behave, how they respond, how they react. You are aware of all of their uh, valuable attributes and good attributes. You are also aware of their flaws and their inadequacies. But you love them because of who they are. And at some point, they might do something that disappoints you, something that upsets you or something that even hurts you, and then you won't love them anymore. Because personal love is based on a personal relationship with the object of your love and is based upon the attractiveness of something in the person you love. On the other hand, we use the term impersonal love in order to stress the fact that a personal relationship is not necessary. When you say to a person under impersonal love, I love you, the emphasis is on the one doing the loving. Your character, your attributes, your integrity, your virtue has nothing to do with what they do and everything to do with who you are. One of the problems that we'll see is when the Scripture commands us to love other believers, it's absolutely impossible for us to have a personal love for every believer on earth. It's impossible for us to know them. There are only a limited number of people that we can know and that we can appreciate and that we can have a relationship with beyond a certain level of intimacy. So how can you have personal love for people you don't know or you just superficially see at church every now and then. And I'm always appalled when I go to a church somewhere and you're told to turn to the person next to you and give them a hug and tell them you love them. And it's just so phony. It's superficial. And what's happened is we have reduced, because of this kind of activity, it makes us feel good and it's warm and it's fuzzy and all of that, but it has no real substance to it and it doesn't last. And what happens is it trivializes the whole concept of love. And then we take this trivial concept of love and we apply it to our relationships. And we go out and we have warm, fuzzy feelings towards somebody and we decide that that's the person that we should spend the rest of our life with because they make us feel good and we like them and I've never felt so wonderful and had these kinds of butterflies in my stomach. We've got this trivial view of love. Then we walk down the aisle and we get married. Six months later, we wake up and... We're past that honeymoon stage and and all the excitement's gone and we look at that person and wonder, who in the world have we married and how did we end up in this position? And now we've got some real problems. So part of the reason there are problems like this and people get into a lot of marriage problems later on is they don't understand the difference between personal love and impersonal love and that if you don't have impersonal love, as the foundation for your personal love, then sooner or later your personal your relationships based on personal love are going to falter and fall apart. Because personal love can never be the basis for a relationship. Because everybody has flaws. Everybody is a sinner. And sooner or later that person you love is going to do something that really hurt you. Maybe not. Maybe you'll be fortunate. But sooner or later, they might say something. You might go through a series of tests or trials. You never know what will happen in life that will break that down. And if you haven't undergirded your relationship with impersonal love, then you've built it on that relationship on shifting sands and that relationship will begin to fragment and fall apart. So let's begin with some technical definitions as we advance our understanding of personal love for God. First of all, a definition of personal love. Personal love is a category of love that is selective, 
conditional and dependent. Get those three words. It's selective. That means it's only directed towards a few. You can't have personal love towards everyone. Now, I know there might be some men that try to have personal love towards every woman they meet, but <clears throat> sooner or later that falls apart. Personal love is selective. It is conditional. It is always based on some element. As long as you do this, then I will love you. As long as you meet my needs, as long as you act a certain way, as long as you look a certain way, as long as you do the things that I like you to do, then I will love you. It is selective. It's limited to a few. It's conditional. It's based upon the the meeting of certain conditions. And it's dependent upon the appeal or merit in the person loved. As long as they are appealing or have some merit in them, then they're loved. (coughs) But as soon as uh, Donald Trump loses all of his money and is a penniless beggar in the street, he's no longer loved anymore. That's the concept of conditional love. Personal love requires no virtue on the part of the lover. No virtue on the part of the I here. Everything's based on the performance of the person being loved. Personal love requires no virtue on the part of the lover and persists only as long as the object of love remains attractive, likable, and fulfills the expectations of the lover. Only a few chosen people truly qualify to be the object of our personal love. Only a few people ever qualify to be the object of our personal love. So that's personal love. Dependent, conditional, and selective. Now we go to impersonal love. Impersonal love puts the emphasis on the one loving. It's also called unconditional love because it doesn't place any conditions on the person loved for, their, for them to be the object of our love. So it is then, therefore, the consistent function of individual integrity and virtue toward friends, enemies, loved ones, and strangers. Impersonal love always seeks the highest and best for the object of the love, irregardless of its impact on the one loving. Without regard, put it this way, without regard for impact on the one loving. Now that's hard for us to get a hold of. Because at the very root, we're very selfish, self-centered, self-oriented people. And when it comes to this saying, well, I'm just going to sacrifice, I may get hurt in the process. And Jesus said, greater love has no man than the one who lays down his life for another. That's the idea of love. It's sacrifice. It is not putting any emphasis whatsoever on self, but putting the emphasis on what is the best for the person loved. So it's based upon the virtue or integrity of the I. It is limited by that. So it's the consistent function of individual integrity and virtue towards friends, enemies, loved ones, and strangers. Therefore, it is a non-emotional and unconditional regard for the entire human race. Two key words. It is non Emotional. See, Americans think that automatically think love is emotional. We think love is an emotion that's automatic in most people's mind. When you think of love, you immediately categorize it as an emotion. Except an emotion cannot be commanded. And love is commanded of the believer. So for something to be commanded, you have to be able to respond to it with your volition and with your mind. So love is essentially a mental attitude and a volitional response, and it is not an emotion. So the kind of love that we're talking about in Scripture is non-emotional and an unconditional regard for the entire human race that does not require intimacy, friendship, attractiveness, or even acquaintance with the specific object of love. For example, a pastor 
exercises impersonal love when he spends his time studying the Word, digging out the truth of Scripture, and bringing it to the congregation so that he can feed them spiritually. Now, in a, small, in a congregation the size that we have, maybe over time, I might get to know many of you on a personal level. But that may take a lot of time. Some of you I may never get to know on a personal level just because we don't have the time or the opportunity. It has nothing to do with your likability or affability or attractiveness or mine. It's just the, the facts of the matter. Any person is limited in those to whom he can have a close, intimate relationship. You look at a pastor of a large congregation of several hundred people, there is no way he can be expected or should be expected to have personal love for every member of that congregation. He can't even tell you the name of everyone in that congregation. But he exercises his his impersonal love for that congregation by studying the Word day in and day out and standing in the pulpit and teaching doctrine so that they can learn and grow and mature as believers. So impersonal love does not require intimacy, attractiveness, or even acquaintance with the specific object of love. You can treat someone with impersonal love when you're driving down the freeway and they are not being very considerate or sensitive to other drivers and they're driving 30 miles an hour when the speed limit is 50. You still treat them with impersonal love. That keeps you from having stress and having high blood pressure as you're driving behind them down the road and allows you to focus on things of eternal value and pass the test and go to spiritual maturity. Just think of that the next time you're driving down one of these roads. That's what I need to do. Because I've never seen so many people who are just bent on driving as slow as possible. You know, out west, people are always, you know, when the speed limit's 55, that means never under any conditions go any slower than 55. Here I've discovered when the speed limit's 55, it's whatever you do, don't come within 10 miles an hour of this speed limit. <laughs> so I get lots of opportunities to test impersonal love. Impersonal love derives from the virtue of the subject, not the appeal or merit of the object of love, and views all people through the eyes of a virtuous character built on Bible doctrine and personal love for God the Father. In essence, impersonal love is not based on who you are and your character because you're a sinner just like I am. Impersonal love is based on our understanding of who God is and what Christ has done for us on the cross. One application of impersonal love is found in Ephesians 4, that we are forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. What's the model? The model is God in Christ. As we treat other people in impersonal love, it is based on who God is and what Christ has done for us. That's the model and that's the standard. So we've defined personal love and we've defined impersonal love. And now we have to go to the next step, which is defining personal love for God the Father. Personal love for God the Father is based on knowledge. When we say, I love you, and we're talking to another human being, the person we're talking about is flawed. But God is not flawed. In fact, God is absolute perfection. He is perfect righteousness. So there's no flaw. So the only object in all the universe that has true virtue that will never change is God the Father. So we can love God the Father with personal love because he is the only object in the universe that will never change he is immutable and so we can have a stable basis for our love and we can have personal love for God but that is based on a knowledge about God love true love is always based on knowledge it's based on knowing someone understanding their character understanding their attributes understanding uh, everything that's important to them So as the believer learns and applies doctrine and his knowledge of God increases, he responds with respect, admiration, and devotion to God for who he is and what he has done. Let me say that again. As the believer learns and applies doctrine and his knowledge of God increases, he responds with respect, 
admiration and devotion to God. Devotion to God for who He is and what He has done. Deuteronomy 6.5, Matthew 22.37, 1 Peter 1.8. Now, personal love for God the Father becomes a problem-solving device or a stress buster that undergirds impersonal love for mankind. You can't get to impersonal love for mankind or unconditional love unless that's undergirded by a personal love for God the Father. And you can't get there without doctrinal orientation and grace orientation. So you see how this builds, how it develops, how incrementally we're learning the different skills we have to practice in order to grow and mature as believers. That's why sometimes these are called spiritual skills. Because these are what we master. And as we master these skills from uh, confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, as you master these skills, then you are advanced to the next level in spiritual growth towards spiritual maturity. So as we do this, let's look at some key passages to understand some of the principles that Scripture gives us about love. First of all, let's turn to Matthew chapter 22, verses 37. Verse 37 and 38. Matthew 22. Let's pick up the context in chapter 35. Matthew 22, 35. This is a citation from the Old Testament law. A citation from Deuteronomy 6.5. Once again, we have a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus, the He is Jesus, had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were always warring with one another. So now the Pharisees said, well, they couldn't handle it, so we can. They gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, it would be a lawyer, wouldn't it? You know, we always crack jokes about lawyers, but when you're really in trouble, who do you want? A really good lawyer. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And there he uses law in a technical sense for the Old Testament. The law and the prophets was a title that the Jews gave the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying on these two commandments, on these two mandates, depend the entire Old Testament. So everything rests on these commands. He has summarized all of the law in these two commands, and they are what we call personal love for God the Father and impersonal love for all mankind. Personal love for God the Father. You shall love the Lord your God. This is a future, active, indicative, second person singular of the verb agapao. Here's what it looks like in the Greek, agapao. Now, Somebody asked me on Sunday, and I thought it was a good, or, or made a suggestion, I thought it was a good suggestion, and that was to help you understand why it is that I parse these verbs like this. You never know what you're going to learn from this. Future tense, active voice, indicative mood. Now, a Greek verb has one of six tenses. Future tense looks forward and just sort of summarizes the action as a point in time. It doesn't really look at it in terms of the duration of the action. Uh, one way to describe Greek tenses have two, two ideas behind them. One is time and one is what grammarians call aspect. Now, I always had a hard time with the word aspect myself, but it has to do with the mode of action. For example, time can be present, future, or past. That solves the time issue. But mode of action is how you, the writer, or the person performing the action, relates to the action itself. And the best illustration of this is that, if, let's say you're at a parade. 
Now, all of you have been to a parade at one time or another, and you're in the stands, and this parade goes on and on and on. I know last March we were at the St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York, and we were standing up at the steps at the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, and that parade lasts five or six hours and just goes on and on, and no matter how far you look, you can't see the end or the beginning. You're just right there, present tense, continuous action. That's the idea of present tense. That's aspect. It's just... You're within the, in the action, and it's continuous. It's progressive. Then, the, then you would perhaps be at the parade, and you're in the Goodyear blimp. And you're the eye in the sky, and you're up high, and you can look down. And unlike the person on the ground who can't see the beginning or the end, but just sees the continuous action, you're up high, that high vantage point, and you're looking down, and you can see the entire parade, all the action, from beginning to end. Okay? Present and imperfect tense. Present tense is present time. The Greek imperfect tense is past time are both progressive action. That's like the person sitting there on the steps watching the parade, can't see the beginning or the end. It's just the duration of the parade. The aorist tense and the future tense are like the guy in the sky who's looking down and sees everything in sort of a summary fashion. The perfect tenses have to do with past action and present results. The best way to communicate this is when I was in high school, I marched in the band. We had white hush puppy shoes. We marched behind the horses. Present results of past action. The perfect tenses are like the janitors who follow the parade and have to clean up after the parade. They're dealing with the present results of past action. So the present tense is progressive action without reference to beginning or end. Aorist tense, future tense, you're up in the sky looking down. It's more of a summary of all the action without reference to its beginning or its end. You just summarize it up. And then the perfect is, is dealing with the results. So here, this is in the future time, and it's just sort of summarized in the future. Excuse me, this isn't an indicative, this is a subjunctive. The active voice. Now, in Greek, you have three voices. An active voice, a passive voice, and a middle voice. Active voice means that the subject performs the action of the verb. John hit the ball. God so loved the world. God performs the action of loving. John hit the ball. John performs the action of hitting the ball. The ball was hit by John. The ball is the subject, but the verb is passive. It's was hit. So the subject receives the action of the verb. We were justified by faith. That is a passive voice. That means that in justification we receive the action of the verb. You were justified by faith. We don't perform the action, we receive it. Somebody else does all the work. Christ did all the work on the cross. God's the one who justifies us. We simply receive it. But here it's an active voice. So every believer is expected to perform the action of loving God. It's up to you. That means it's your volition. You perform the act. Nobody else does it for you. And then it's in the subjunctive mood. Now the indicative mood is the mood of reality. The mood of certainty. The subjunctive mood and the imperative moods are moods related to potentiality. Subjunctive is potential but probable. Well, any potential mood emphasizes volition. So there's a volition, volitional element here. That it's up to your volition as to whether or not this is enacted. And this is a first person plural. Or second, excuse me, second person plural here. And the subjunctive voice is often used in place of an imperative as a command. And when it's, that happens, it's called a hortatory. That's this word, hortatory. Which comes from the word exhortation. 
It's called a hortatory subjunctive. It is an exhortation or command. It is used sometimes in place of a command, and it is often used in the New Testament when you get a quote from the Old Testament. Because many times the commands in the Old Testament, if it's a perfect, a cow perfect expresses a command, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy 6.5. So this is the syntax of this particular verb. The future means that you will do this. This is in the future in your spiritual growth. You shall do this. The, the future subjunctive indicates a command, an exhortation to do this. You, the believer, you are the one responsible for loving God. It's a second person plural, which should be accurately translated. Y'all shall love the Lord your God with all your... I see that southern accent comes in handy every now and then to accurately exegete the scriptures. Y'all shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And we have three important Greek nouns here. The first is cardia. K-A-R-D-I-A. The second is suke, translated soul. Suke, P-S-U-C-H-E. And the third word translated mind is dianoia from the root nous. D-I-A-N-O-I-A. This is the mentality of the soul, what I usually refer to as the left lobe. This is the heart, the innermost part of the thinking of the soul. One of the keys to ever discovering how uh, words are to be understood and translated is to go back and look at how they're used at the very first time they're used in Scripture. If you go back the very first time the word heart is used in Scripture, it's used in Genesis 6 right before uh, right before the worldwide flood of Noah. And God looks on the human race and he says, He saw that the thoughts of their heart were evil continually. What takes place in the heart? Is it emotion? No. The thoughts of the heart. Continually. And throughout the Bible, heart... As far as I've discovered, now there are some places where you may think it has to do with emotion. But as far as I've been able to ascertain, looking at as many references over the years as I could, both the Old Testament word lave and the L-E-V and the New Testament word cardia never refer to human emotions. They refer to the innermost recesses of the thinking of the soul what I sometimes refer to as the right lobe of the mentality. Because there's two different arenas the Bible talks about. A more general arena of thinking, which is the nous or dianoia, and the innermost area or the right lobe of the soul, of the thinking of the soul, where your innermost thoughts reside. This is where gnosis resides in the nous, epinosis in the cardia. And the soul here is, suke here is soul. Now, what does the word, the proverb, I didn't, I can't remember the exact reference, but very well-known proverb says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now, most people think that the word translated heart there is the Hebrew lave, but it's not. It's the Hebrew nefesh, which is the word for soul. So as a man thinks in his soul. So what do you do in your, in your soul? You also think. You, that's what your emotions are there. Other things are there, your conscience, self-consciousness, all of these things. But the fundamental reality of the soul is to be the seat of thinking. So right here, between cardia, suke, and dianoia, there's a heavy emphasis on thinking and thought and the mentality as the source of love for God. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. It's repetitious. He's using synonyms, using all these words 
and as synonyms in order to drive home the point that love is not emotion. This is not getting up in the morning and everything feels good and I just love the Lord and isn't He wonderful because as soon as something bad happens and as soon as you wake up and you're a little tired or you're a little depressed or a little discouraged, then you're not going to love God. See, emotions fluctuate. They're not related to thinking or content at all. So we have to focus on thinking and that's what Jesus says here. Love is based on thinking. And then he connects this first and foremost commandment with the second one in verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is recognizing that as part of of the sin nature, we operate under three arrogant skills. Three arrogant skills. Skills are self-deception, self-justification, and self-absorption. Our natural inclination is to be focused on self. We love ourselves. Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is discussing the kind of love that a man should have for his wife. Well, turn with me there. I think this is an important passage because so many people today get caught up in the idea that that if somebody uh, is not doing well or they're sad or they're depressed and they say, well, they just have a poor self-image. They don't love themselves. Let's see what the Scripture says about self-love. In Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 Look at verse 29, 28. Let's pick up the context. It has to do with the husband's love for his wife. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. And that puts the woman on a higher plateau than themselves. See, you've got to get, in any marriage, you've got to get out of arrogance. When you're self-absorbed, self-justification and self-deception operating on the arrogant skills, then you can't love your spouse. If you're a husband, you can't love your spouse when you're concerned about your job and your career and everything that you're doing and you're totally oblivious to who she is and what's going on in her life. So husbands ought also to love their own wives, that is, seeking the highest and best for their wife as their own bodies. Why? He who loves his own wife loves himself. The best way as a husband that you can exercise self-love is to love your wife. And then there's an explanation. And in the Greek, it begins with this particle, gar, G-A-R, which always introduces an explanation. For, and then we have a principle, a gnomic principle. This is a timeless fact. It's true throughout, throughout all time, every dispensation, every culture. For no one, how is that limited? It says no one, no one except for the person down the street who who has a poor self-image. No, it says for no one, period, no one ever hated his own flesh. So when the person says, I hate myself, they really don't hate themselves. They have a standard that they want to live up to. They have failed to live up to that standard. Because they love themselves, they are upset that they failed to meet the standard. So they don't hate themselves, they're, just dis- they're extremely disappointed with their failure to meet a standard, which in many cases is an unrealistic standard. But see, if, they, if you really hate somebody, you wish the worst on them. You want them to feel bad, you want them to look bad, you want them to be a failure. So if you really hate yourself, you'd say, I'm glad I'm a failure. I'm glad I'm fat and overweight and can't stick to a diet and I'm ugly and all of these things because you wish that on those you hate. But most people look and they say, I hate myself because I'm ugly and because I'm fat and I can't stick to a diet and I can't succeed and I fail at this. Well, you don't hate yourself. You've disappointed in yourself, but you wouldn't feel bad if you didn't love yourself at the very core. And that's what this is saying. No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. So, everybody loves themselves. And what Jesus is saying is, look, 
You put yourself first because of your arrogance and self-absorption. Now what you need to do is love other people like you love yourself. You need to put them first. That's the same principle that Paul articulates here and applies to marriage. Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. It's putting the other person first instead of themselves. It's getting out of the trap of the arrogant skills of self-absorption, self-justification, and self-deception. So love towards one another in impersonal love puts the other person first and puts our personal desires, wants, feelings secondary. It always seeks the highest and best for the object of our love. So Matthew 22 articulates the two principles of personal love for God the Father and impersonal love for all mankind. Well, to understand this concept a little further, let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And we will just barely get started here tonight before it will be time to break up. In fact, well, let's just introduce it. 1 John 4, 7. Well, let's go to verse 19. This is what happened to me this afternoon. 1 John 4.19 Now, I haven't asked this question before. How many of you use a New American Standard Bible? New American Standard Version? How many use King James? Okay, King James Version users will read in verse 19, We love Him because He first loved us. Those of you with the New American Standard Version will say, We love because He first loved us. The difference is the word him. In the King James Version, there is an object. Here is the, the, the subject is we, all believers. The verb is love. And the direct object is him. In the Greek, what we have is the verb in its root form, agapao. And then as the direct object, the accusative case, ton, and then the third-person pronoun, auton, in the accusative case, indicating the direct object. It's a definite article, T-O-N, and auton from the root autos. Now, this is uh, in the third-person plural of the present active subjunctive of agapomen. We or excuse me, uh, yes, of, of uh, third person plural of agapao, we love. It's present active indicative. We love because he first loved us. Now, what happens is, if you get into your Greek text, there's a little footnote right here. Okay, so you have a little number one, and you go down into the footnotes, what's called the apparatus of the Greek text, and it tells you that there is a textual problem here. Now, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of Greek manuscripts. And every now and then there are differences in the manuscripts. For example, if I were to dictate a letter to you, let's say I were to take the book of Galatians, and I were to dictate, give each of you a pencil and a tablet, and I'm going to dictate this to you, and you're going to write down everything I say, because we don't have Xerox machines, because we're living in the 800s, and all we have is a pencil and a tablet. So no Xerox machines, no printers, The only way we can make copies is for us to go into the scriptorium of a monastery and have one of the monks read from one manuscript to a group of monks who will then take it down. And over the process of time, one or two of you will make mistakes and you will not hear a word correctly or you will misspell a word. And so errors will enter into the manuscript tradition. So the science of textual criticism is to look at all the manuscripts and when there are disagreements to weigh the evidence and determine what the original said. As Dr. Ryrie told us in uh, Introduction to Bibliology, my first year at seminary, the problem is not that we have 98% of the Word of God. The problem is we have 102% of the Word of God and we have to figure out which 2% to get rid of. That's the science of textual criticism. And there are a lot of technicalities and a lot of issues. And just to give you a little brief history, the, the Textus Receptus, it's 
called the TR by abbreviation. The Textus Receptus is that manuscript tradition. MSS is the abbreviation for manuscript. Is the manuscript tradition that was available in 1611 when they translated the King James Version. So that's called the TR. And those people who are a rugged adherence to the King James Version will often say if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, then it's good enough for me. Only trouble is, Paul couldn't have understood King James English on his best, best day because it did not exist at the time that he lived. Now, that was based on a limited number of manuscripts. But in later years, in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, literally hundreds of manuscripts were discovered. Thousands of, of fragments of ancient manuscripts were discovered. And so... A couple of Anglican scholars by the name of Westcott and Hort, W.H., came up with a theory for trying to evaluate all of this evidence. And they came up with what was called the Westcott-Hort text, and sometimes it's called the Nestle-Allen text today. That's the theory that underlies, anyway, the Nestle-Allen text and some others today. And that's that's the manuscript tradition that underlies most of your modern translations the NASB, the NIV, and a number of other popular modern translations. It's different from the, it differs in many ways from the TR. And their basic rule of thumb, now I'm really simplifying this, but their basic rule of thumb was this. If it's older, it's accurate. Older is better. And they put all of their weight on three or four particular manuscripts. Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, oh, there's a couple of others I can't think of right now. There's Sinaiticus, Vaticanus. Um, I don't know. I can't th- think of the name of them. But if those, if three of these four agree, then that's that must be the original. That's that's the assumption underlying their rule. Then, in recent years, there's been the development of another theory called the majority text. And to really simplify that, whatever is in the majority of manuscripts is how the original reads. Now, only two of these older manuscripts have uh, are missing the words ton auton in 1 John 4.19. But the majority of manuscripts, in fact, of, of the four that Westcott and Hort tended to emphasize, the four older ones... Two lack town atan. One has ton thaon, which is we love God because He first loved us, and the and so two have nothing. Two include something related to the object of the verb, and then the vast majority of manuscripts have the object. So the textual critic comes to a passage like this and says, "Well, should we include this or not? Was this a scribal error where they left it out?" Or was somebody trying just to clarify it and added it in and it ended up being in the majority of manuscripts? And it seems to me that the context argues that, aside from other other aspects related to textual critical theory, that it should read, in my opinion, we love him because he first loved us. I think you've got to go with the majority text. I'm not a pure majority text man, but I tend to go with it eight out of ten times. And incidentally, most of the men who, are, who have been behind all the Greek scholarship underlying the development of the majority text are people like Zane Hodges and Art Farstad who just went to be with the Lord and a number of others who also happen to be the, the guys who are out there on the battlefield in scholarship fighting for faith alone and Christ alone salvation, which I think is just an interesting juxtaposition of scholarly positions. Zane always caught all kinds of grief from all the other faculty members at Dallas because he held to a majority text view. Everybody else at Dallas held to a real eclectic view. It's sort of like, well, whatever floats your boat when you're exegeting the passage, go with that choice. But there's, uh, there's a little more science to it than that, but we don't need to get into all of those intricacies. Well, as I got into that passage today and I thought, well, we love him because he first loved us. How do we love Him? And I started backing it up because I remembered a basic principle of hermeneutics, which is a text 
without a context is a pretext. So you always have to look at your context. And I kept backing up, backing up, and backing up. And I realized this is a rich passage on the love of God. And it goes all the way back to first to verse 7. All the way back to verse 7. Beloved, let us... There we have a, a present active subjunctive. It's an ex- exhortation again of agapao. Let us love one another. For love has its source from God, and everyone who loves is, number one, born of God, which means they're regenerate, and two, knows God. That means they're growing in the spiritual life. Because when we come to verse 8, it says, the one who does not love does not know God. It doesn't say the one who does not love is not regenerate or does not know God. It only goes to the second category. The one who does not love is still regenerate. He just does not know God. He's never taken the time to learn about God and to learn any doctrine. Once again, what we see here is that love is based on knowledge. It's an activity of the mind, not an activity of the intellect. Well, we'll come back and start with verse 7 next week as we develop the subject of personal love for God the Father, and then we will go right into impersonal love for all mankind, because this is so critical to all relationships. People call in, I think we've had a couple of questions on our website, on the internet, people wanting to know uh, how do you, if we had any material on people testing. Because some of the greatest tests that we face in life are dealing with other people and other sin natures, whether it's at work, whether it's with a spouse, whether it's with children, whether it's with parents, older parents, in-laws, neighbors, whatever it may be, we have to understand how to deal with other people. And the greatest problem-solving for that device for that is impersonal love for all mankind. So we'll take probably three or four weeks to just step out of James a little bit and do a topical study of these two uh, stress busters so we can apply them in our lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time tonight and for the opportunity to study this so critical doctrine. Pray that you will help us to understand uh, the importance of it and how it can apply to all of our relationships, that we may advance through our tests in such a way that you are glorified and that we advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, I believe that those of you who are...